can build a lifestyle business that supports some type of uh, work lifestyle and uh, ability to, to be remote, then that's, that's pretty much achieving the work dream. Welcome to Exciting Careers Podcast, where our job is to travel the world finding stories, habits, and tools to inspire you and your career. We don't need to be rich or famous to have an exciting career, but we do need to be making a difference in the world and to feel excited to wake up in the morning to go do whatever it is we're working on. This podcast is brought to you by MaxiCareerCoaching.com. And now your host, Mari Pimenta. Sam, thank you so much for your time. I know that you have lots of interesting things to be doing right now. <laughs> Taking the time to talk to me and to my Brazilian followers and whoever else um, is interested in having an exciting career. So just introducing Sam, he's a digital entrepreneur concentrating on scalable, high-growth startups. Travels constantly, typically 25-plus countries a year investigating opportunities, and getting a better understanding of the global marketplace. Has developed business operations and strategic partnerships spanning four continents, and his projects have resulted in multi-million acquisitions in the last eight years. He views business as the ultimate sport. Well, second to ping pong? Is mm, that true? That is true. That is, is true. Is, is ping pong popular in Brazil? Not really. Um, I actually texted you. I don't know if you saw. I have a friend here, my best friend here in Chiang Mai. He's Canadian. And he actually hired a ping pong coach. Mm -hmm. And he goes to this place where they have like hundreds of ping pong tables. Have you seen this no, here? No, I haven't. You I, have? just, I just found a new badminton place yesterday, which I'm keen to try out. But I didn't know uh, ping pong was taking off and enterprise level. It is. Yeah. I should totally hook you up with him because he has classes like from three to five, three times a week. He's going crazy with See, that's how I want to spend my entire day, just ping pong and, you know, yeah. with a coach. That's the life, I guess. Really? <laughs> Any other sport that you're into? Um, no, not really. It really tails off after high school, I'd say. Go from playing like five sports to zero in about six months. So, really? yeah, ever since then, it's just been work. And when you were in college, what was the sport? I did a lot of things like very average. So I did like wrestle, did uh, swimming, tennis, baseball, football, and played a little bit of golf. But I was just okay at everything. But um, yeah, it was a lot of fun where I grew up in Florida. Of course, it's very hot, so we get good sports all year round. Where in Florida? West Palm Beach. West Palm Beach. But you know, like South Florida is all just one big city. Like West Palm down to Miami. Uh huh. It's about uh, an hour and a half drive. In either direction, and uh, but it's all one huge city. It doesn't stop. The development doesn't stop. The beachfront is completely developed the entire way. So yeah, it's a beautiful area. My yeah. brother lived in Miami, actually playing golf. He got he was number three in Brazil in golf. Get out, really? Yeah, and not that that means a lot because in Brazil golf is not really a big thing. Uh, but I, for us, it meant a lot, and he got a scholarship to to go to the U.S. Well, maybe if you could play golf in a bathing suit, then it would become more popular in Brazil. Yeah, you, know? you would. <laughs> you would. For volleyball. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever been to Brazil? I have not. I just got back from Argentina. Actually, I did a little bit of a South America trip, but I decided to keep Brazil as its own, its own trip because I just think it's too massive to try to take on in you know, a week time or something. It's huge. Yeah. yeah. So maybe you'll accept my invitation and come in July. I think we have an agreement somewhere, uh, some, somewhere uh, 
few contingencies pending. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're gonna work on those. I'm thinking like a week in Sao Paulo, a week in Rio, a week in Floripa, mm -hmm. and a week in Bahia. Okay. I think those are like the four ultimate spots in Brazil that people should, maybe we should create. Actually, we should go through Coworker, which is your business right now, yeah, right? One yeah. of the things, I want you to talk a little bit about Coworker. Mm -hmm. And I was checking out Coworker's website. It's awesome. Like you guys have so many um, interesting things listed, even in Brazil. Yeah, absolutely. Brazil's actually becoming quite a hot market for it. Um, South, a lot of our traffic are now from South America. I just, I assume because there's, we're one of the the first listing uh, platforms there. But um, it's amazing. It's an amazing cat. I mean, we're sitting here in a co-working space, right? Right. It's an amazing category. How quickly it's growing. Um, all the things we were talking about at Digital Nomad Summit, like community aspect and stuff but we can talk about that later in the yeah podcast, yeah sure um so but since we mentioned co-worker like tell me how did you get involved with co-worker and where is it going um mm -hmm. one of the reasons i thought you know you had to be in this podcast was because of the story you told us at the nomad conference mm -hmm. of your your business adventures yep. and you're always hopping in and off of amazing businesses and making them grow and then normally selling them, right? right? That's what you're into. Yeah. So just tell us a little bit more about Coworker, sure. since we mentioned it. Well, I think all like one thing all the businesses I've done have in common is it's something that I felt I knew better than anyone at the time and then used whatever experience I have in that to try to build a business around it. So going back to my first businesses with the Greek faces and college.com, it was, I knew college life as good as anybody. I didn't know how to build websites better than anyone, but I knew fraternity and sorority life, and I knew like the college life as good as anyone in the world. So built built businesses around that. And then with SkySig, it was not that I knew electronic cigarettes as good as anyone, but I knew affiliate marketing as good as anybody in the world knew it. So we just found a product that we thought would fit in that model of marketing well. And now with a coworker, it's, it's very much the same thing. I mean, for the last, I've really been a nomad for the last 10 years, but I've been working at a coworking space for the last three. And it's something I, I totally identify with and think it's it's the future. It's, it is a revolution of the workplace, but it's it's the future for so many people that are um, that are starting to work remotely. So, um, so well, yeah, why why do you think that is? Well, I think that basically the trend is that as people start working remote, a typical like remote worker isn't quit your job, start a business. It's something like you're you start with a full time job. You negotiate to be able to work from two or three days home a week. Maybe that ends up being coming a full-time, you know, remote working situation. Or you have like all these remote workers all over the world that are working through platforms like ODET or I'm sorry, Upwork and Freelancer. And what happens is people take that freedom and they stay home and they like enjoy it for three months. You wake up in your underwear and don't get out of bed and have a coffee in bed and work from home. And that quickly becomes really like isolating and 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 can actually cause you kind of to go into like these almost like depressions, right? Right. Because you, you just end up being isolated from the world. You don't realize how important community is. So that, then the trend is go and start working at coffee shops. And then once you have done that for a few months, it becomes more, I need to get into a network each day and I need to get into an environment with productive people. And the, the story is true for so many people I know that we've all worked from home or done the coffee shop thing for a year and then we all end up in co-working spaces, but up to today, it's been relatively hard to find. But now the, the category is growing so fast. You have cities like uh, New York, Boston, Chicago, speaking in the U.S., that will have 
well over 150 legitimate professional co-working spaces. And now you have in Asia, we're in Chiang Mai, there's four or five here. In Bangkok, there's you know 10 to 15. And every single month you turn around, there's new spots opening up. So it's a great ecosystem for the Nomad Network that's running around you know, so many parts of the world, South America, Southeast Asia, instead of trying to find a, a decent coffee shop with good Wi-Fi, they're going into co-working spaces for a day, a week, a month, um, and it complements it complements their lifestyle. So that's, uh, we decided, to, we, we were looking around online and couldn't find a, a, a reliable centralized directory or resource for finding co-working spaces. Um, so we decided to build that. And Who, who's we? I have an amazing co-founder, Leanne, who's actually just down the, the hall, and you know, we have a little office here. And Leanne and I have been working together on this and that. Um, um, some of my uh, angel investments, she, she would come on board and do a lot of like marketing and, and uh, media setup, and uh, she's just fantastic. I mean, she's been in the co-working scene for five years, and um, just an amazingly talented person. So we decided to do it, and we've been going now about eight months, nine months, launched about five months ago, and it's been growing ever since. That's great. So we're actually monetizing with Coworker. We're not. We're through revenue, and it'll probably be 12 months before we introduce some type of... Service? You know, yeah, revenue channel. It's, um, it's, I think it's kind of like a land grab right now for just getting the inventory of Coworking spaces on. Mm -hmm. um, and then we'll probably introduce some type of booking model or um, or managed paid subscription down the road. But it's not a rush. We have a low burn and and uh, yeah. Have fun while doing it. Yeah, we, rush. It's an excuse to go to different places and visit different co-working spaces and see what they're all about. And then everybody gets to the, everybody probably gives you a free membership. Like, come and try us well, out. We haven't, we haven't started. <laughs> It's, 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 uh, we're early enough on that a lot of people still haven't understood like what we're doing. So some co-working spaces are actually a little timid because they think that maybe we are a co-working space and we're coming in to compete, get information about their business, how they operate. So most of the times we don't even announce it. We'll just go in and say we're, you know, digital entrepreneurs. We're looking for a space for a month or something. Uh -huh. But it's, it's really great to see like. In Southeast Asia, I mean, co-working spaces are just amazing when you get to, especially like Hong Kong, Singapore, as you'd expect, mm -hmm. just top, top quality with like so many amenities. It's, it's really a fun place to be. Really? So how would you compare like the co-working from North America and the co-working from Asia, for example? Do well, I, the spaces here are typically a lot smaller. Um, um, we, we just got done in California. We were like all through San Diego and stuff. And... You know, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of overlap. There's different amenities everywhere you go. Like some of the places in Hong Kong will do free beer, which I thought was really cool. Um, a lot of places in San Diego have rooftop decks where, like, you can go out and sunbathe um, or you know hang out, eat your lunch, have business meetings there. So it's it's kind of a cultural thing. Depending on where you go, it's different things. Um, but yeah, a lot of them there's kind of this hybrid that's emerging where like golf ranges where people at golf balls and stuff really introduce like a co-working aspect to it uh, and shared desk aspects so you know you have a lot of like businesses in Florida for instance small businesses that are running like these offices and use co-working spaces that are on golf ranges and you have these That's groups so of like four cool. or five guys that will go and you know every 30 minutes are out hitting balls and doing their, their business meetings so it's, it's really cool how it's evolving into you know 
you know, kind of blurring the line of business and, and personal life. Totally. Like to be the, the ideal workspace. Yeah. So if you were to create a co-working space yourself in the future, mm -hmm. what would it be like? <laughs> oh man, there's, is this a co-working space for me personally or is this a for business you. to make money? <laughs> for you personally, for you personally. Well, I would have a lot of, of uh, fun elements built into it, of course. It would have uh, a real bar, both a coffee bar, probably a wine bar, probably a whiskey bar. So that's three bars right there just for drinks. Got to have a sun deck, got to have some type of pool. I think I'd make it more like a fraternity house than I would like a co-working space. Probably on a beach somewhere, good sun deck, access to the beach. Um, so it would be at the beach? It would have to be at the beach, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's, especially after being in Chiang Mai for so long, you know. The only thing that's running through my head right now is get to a beach pretty soon, so. Yeah, yeah. me too. It's the only thing that Chiang Mai does not have for us. That's true. That's true. Yeah. That's would, would you have some massage, Thai massage experts? Uh, that sounds like a good idea in Feet theory, massage? but then you just, then you might as well just leave the working aspect out of it because <laughs> I'm already so distracted. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Um, you mentioned the fraternity culture a few mm -hmm. times. I, there are many Brazilians that don't speak English so well. So when these words come in, can you explain what's a fraternity for them? Absolutely. So a fraternity and its counterpart is sorority are basically clubs on college on college campuses designed either explicitly for men, which would be a fraternity, or female, which would be a sorority. So a, a typical college campus in the USA would have, um, like a big college would have, say, 20 fraternities and 20 sororities. The fraternities will be all different types of guy groups. So you might have one that are like the sports jocks, and you might have one that are like the nerdy nerds. and you might have 10 that are like kind of party guys and a few that are, are uh, somewhere in between, right? So it's like a club? It's a club. Of guys who, yep. who get along? Get along. So it'd be like 100 guys in each one and, and they, they try to do like everything together, like party together, do sporting events together, hang out at, you know, whatever. It's just, yeah. yeah. And you go through your college career kind of with those guys. Cool. Yeah, we don't have anything like that in Brazil. That's good. Whenever you see like the, the typical American fraternity or like college college parties, culture, it's always you'll always see some element of, uh, of fraternities and sororities in there. Okay. Usually the party scenes. Cool. Okay, so I want you to tell me a little bit about your story, like mm -hmm. from the start. So you were born in Florida. Did you come from a wealthy family, poor family? Just give us some background. Yeah, I, I was born in um, in South Florida and. I guess I grew up pretty, pretty lower to middle class. Um, I, I, like my parents had their own business, but they didn't make any money. But I, I think one of the, the main things that was always a driving part in my life growing up was that they, they had freedom and flexibility. So like where I went to school was a pretty bad school, but whenever I got sick at school, like my mom picked me up, you know, and, and whenever like, you know, they, I had a baseball game, they came to my baseball game. So I kind of understood like, the freedom and flexibility of owning your own business at a young age, even though that it didn't necessarily mean like material value, you know, we never had new cars or new sports equipment or, you know, stuff like that. So, um, so both your parents had the freedom. They, yeah. They could work remotely. Exactly. Well, sort of, they had like, a, they weren't exactly in the startup scene. They owned a small, like a wood and furniture store. So there's, it's a very limited, you know, scale business, but, 
it, but, but they owned it. it they were yeah, like entrepreneurs. Yeah, yeah. So you, 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 do you think you got some of that from your parents? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, that was the whole freedom thing, right? So I, I could never, I never saw myself sitting in like a box working, um, you know, in a, in a very conservative fashion. So, um, and then my dad kind of taught me how to think um, for opportunity and, and, and spot trends. So like he was always asking me like, let me know if there's any cool new toys in school or what shoes everyone's wearing. Cause my dad would try to like invest in stock market. So he'd have me like tell him every month, like what shoes kids are wearing and if there are any new games out and stuff. And he would kind of use that to understand what kids were, were identifying with at the time. So, so he, that, he was also investing in the stock market. That's something well, you grew up seeing. Yeah. I, I don't think he ever made any money from it. I think if anything, he lost money, but uh, I guess the point was just to, also get me looking for like opportunity and, and, and almost in a marketing sense. Right. Uh, so I went to school in Florida, um, developed a business in, uh, while I was in school that, um, I got, I, I basically, long story short is I got arrested five times as my first year in college. <laughs> what? Doing what? Uh, stupid stuff. Mostly drinking, fake ID, yeah, you know, breaking a window, you know, it's just like stupid college stuff. But there was the state capital, Tallahassee, is in Florida, and so there's a lot of police out all the time trying to make quotas, and so they're just arresting everyone for retarded things. So, my, so that's where you went to college? That's where I went to college, Florida State, and my advisor told me that I would be, I would never get a job, let alone a government job, which I was at the time in criminology, I wanted to like work for the police or whatever. So they're like, okay, you're basically, we're going to have to kick you out of school, and you're not going to get a job, so you better figure out how to do a business. And I pleaded to let him like let me stay in school, and my parents uh, basically like you know said we're not going to give you any more money for school. You got to do it yourself. So I had to start like just totally rechange my life because of some really I still think they're just totally stupid mistakes. I don't even know if they're mistakes. It's just part of being in college. But for whatever reason, I had you know. How old were you back then? I was eighteen. Eighteen, just a kid. Yeah. Yeah. But for, for that reason, I had to really sh reshape my life and my activities. And um, so at that point, I just I basically got involved in everything I could in school, got a job to pay for my tuition, and realized I was never going to get a real job. So I had to start putting my mind on a, on a business track. Um, so it was actually like a great thing that happened for you to get in so much trouble. And yeah. Well, yeah. I, I guess if I, I look at where I'm at as a fortunate place to be, then... That was definitely the critical changing point in my life that kind of was like do or die. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So then you went through the whole college. You mm -hmm. did not quit. You graduated. Did not quit. Um, graduated with very average grades. And I came out of that with, I had started a business in college that was a social network um, for fraternities and sororities. And that, that was, uh, that was my first crack at business really. And didn't make any money. The entire time I was in college, and then right when I was graduating, I got a phone call from guys that own college.com. They wanted to, they wanted me to come work for them, and they wanted to use the members of our site to go to basically launch their, their product. So their whole thing was to take college.com and turn it into what Facebook was when it was just for college students. Okay. Right about this time, Facebook said, we're expanding from college, and we're going to open up the network to the world. Right. Um, so yeah, so I uh, did a deal with them and started to work for them while I was actually a senior in college. And then right when I got out of college, went to work for them full time. 
and we so, sold, so just, sold that. Just yeah. for me to understand, the, the company that you said before, um, the Geek... Um, the Greek Faces. The Greek Faces, mm -hmm. sorry. The Greek Faces was something that came prior to college.com that you developed? Yes. And That's then right. you got the team that you had or the people yep. that you had, and then you just kind of like transfer that to college.com? Yep, exactly. Okay. Yeah. And what was the the, geek, uh, the Greek faces? It was, a, it was a social network for fraternities and sororities. So it's, if you think of what Facebook is, and then just knock it down to an, uh, a tighter niche of just fraternities and sorority members. So you had to be in one of these memberships. To be part of it. To be part of it. And in your specific college? In any college in the U.S. We had every college in the U.S. Oh. And... Um, because Greek, Greek life is really only relevant in the USA, is a little bit in Europe and stuff, but so pretty much our whole community was in the USA, but you had to be in one of these clubs to be on the site. Okay. So it was kind of an exclusive thing. It was, it was very early on for social networking. So and how did you manage to put this together? Like, did you have any online skills had, back then? I had, no, I, I had no idea, but it was one of those things that I was in, basically in trouble and I had to fight my way out. So I didn't, it was kind of, I got, I forced myself into figuring these things out. I, I contacted a guy that I had gone to high school with and took a HTML web class. And he was like the best person in the HTML web class. And I contacted him and he's like, well, good timing because I just like started this company and we haven't done any work yet. So he's like, okay, I'll do, you know, I'll build this for you with these guys for X amount. It was like a couple thousand dollars or something. And that was like my life savings to that point. But I'm like, okay, let's try it. And it was their first project, so they took it very seriously. Like, we can, you know, do, use this to launch our business. And it, it was my first project, so of course I took it very seriously. Okay. And it, it ended up working out. And why did you decide to pay him instead of invite him to be your partner, for example? Um, if I'd done it, like in hindsight, I, I would have done it that way. But I think they wanted to do, you know, they were launching a business, so they wanted a little bit of cash. And for me, you know, it, it was all the money I had at that point, but I realized like it's probably just a drop in the bucket in, in terms of money I could make in my life. So in this time, at this time, you were like 20, 21? Yeah, twenty. So this was like your first, first business. Mm -hmm. You were twenty, twenty-one. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't even call it a business. You know, it was a project. It was something I was trying. Because you weren't, you don't call it a business because you weren't making money out of it yet. At well, that yeah, point. it wasn't. I, I, of course, I thought of it as a business then, but. Really, it was just, we were just trying to build something on the internet with no idea of how to make money or anything. I mean, it's what a lot of startups are doing right now. Um, even with, like, you know, co-worker, we're not, we're not making money off it. We're just building something. So, at some point, you start calling yourself a business. But looking back at that, it was, it was like a hobby or like, a, you know, just yeah. testing something. So No, I think this is really interesting because a lot of clients that hire me as a career coach... Um, they have this dream that they're going to build something. They're going to start making money like two months later. Yeah. And it's nice to hear from you that most of, is that a pattern? Like most of the businesses that you start, you just start taking total risk and not making any money in the beginning? Oh, well, it's, it's totally different. Um, you know, if you're doing a pure tech play, I think you have to go at it with an, you know, a plan of, um, of, of not making money for a while because also often if you introduce revenue channels or try to monetize it too early, you scare away a lot of your business contacts or your customers too early on without giving them good value. But with, with like SkySig, I mean, we're, we were selling products within three months. That was a product business, right? Right. So, so you let's start trying to make money as quickly as possible as long as you're giving your customers good value. Right. So from college.com, how long did you stay at college.com? Uh, after I graduated, within six months they sold it. 
Okay, and yeah. then and then Sky so, State came along. Yeah, so that was then there was about a four year window of uh, a three to four year window where the guy that owned college.com I kept in good contact with, and we we were kind of dabbling here and there. Um, and I was like, I was pretty much doing odd jobs, like just trying not to jump into anything too long term, and um, learning how to, to do affiliate marketing. So I realized like after after um, college.com, like there's some serious scale that was coming to the internet, and I wanted to know more about it. So I didn't know anything about like SEO. I didn't really know how to, to do marketing online. I knew how to like build websites at the time, but I didn't know how to. You to didn't. Run. You didn't know. Right. I didn't know how to run like advertising or do media buys and stuff so i started researching that so researching seo a lot um by yourself yeah yeah just starting blogs and like fig- trying to figure things out really and um then i just got into the affiliate marketing game mm-hmm. and that started becoming pretty lucrative and right around that time um some of the people that i had done business with in the past we had been out in a conference an affiliate marketing conference in las vegas and uh, we're approached by a guy that was selling e-cigarettes. Okay, he wasn't so, selling e-cigarettes, I'm sorry. He was like one of the first manufacturers of e-cigarettes. Okay, I really want to talk about this, but just before, because you mentioned affiliates. Can you explain, because affiliate is like this big monster that yeah. is a bunch of different things, mm-hmm. right? So what, what, when you say affiliate, what are you talking about? I'm talking specifically about someone who is selling a product online that they don't have anything to do with. Right? They don't touch it. They're just, you have a manufacturer that owns a product and they want someone to sell it. So they find these people online that can sell it. And that's the affiliate. And they'll pay them out every time they sell it. The affiliate never has to actually touch a product. Right. The product's in someone else's warehouse. All they're doing is selling it. And then they trust that that shipment's going to go out. So you're, intermediate, um, you're an intermediate person who's getting commission mm-hmm. on top of this sale. Right. Right. Absolutely. And, the, and like another term for it's drop shipper, but sometimes the models are slightly different depending on if they need a, a, uh, a warehouse or to touch the product or do some level of customer service. But um, definitely where affiliates evolved from was literally someone just, a lot of it started in gaming, with casinos and stuff. And people were like, okay, I can bring you a player and then you're going to pay me for that player. And then like dating was really big and like bring me a, a member to my dating site. You know, so I have the member and then I'll pay you for bringing me the traffic and stuff. So that's, it's, affiliates have been on the internet basically as long as the internet's been around and I think they'll be around forever. Okay. Now the platforms that you used back then, was it Amazon? Um, Amazon, I think, eBay, this kind of platform? Never, yeah, never. So there's affiliate networks that specialize just in affiliate offers. So manufacturers that have products will go to them and say, we want you to sell this. And the affiliate network will say, okay, we'll put your product on our website and then we have contacts to say a thousand affiliates around the web. And now they can go and sell your product. So there's, there's actually platforms for affiliates to meet and like basically offers or, or um, suppliers. So do you have any to recommend to kids who are starting? Um, the ones that I used to work through was like Copiac, I don't even know how to spell that anymore, C-O-P-Yak, um, I think E-A-C, and then there was Ads for Dough, um, CX Digital, there's a bunch, like if you just Google affiliate networks, you know, and the, what's what's around today might be different in a year, you just have to stay on top of it and figure out who's got the best offers and 
and um, is reliable for payment. Mm -hmm. When somebody asks me, like, I'm, you know, depressed with my job, I don't know what to do, what's the first thing you recommend? I always recommend, like, learn how to do a website. Yeah, I think that's uh, that that's what was true probably 10 years ago, and it's true today. Um, you, I, I never recommend anyone quit. I think the smartest thing to always do is, like, when you're getting started, is to have a reliable source of income, mm -hmm. and then work, you know, don't go home and watch TV or play around. Go home and learn how to do something on the internet and don't quit your job until you're confident that what you're doing can replace um, your revenue stream if not fully at least partially so affiliate marketing is definitely one of the tools that they should learn right I think that's probably number one because you can build websites so easily now with like WordPress and stuff so first you have to build some type of website you might not have to do the code yourself for the, the HTML but you can find someone online to do it for 50 or 100 bucks so you're your, and, uh, the return on your time is probably better spent learning how to market something online. So you're going to want to just try anything. You know, Don't worry about getting it right because the chances of you making money the first time you try it are very, very small. But um, build a simple website, put an affiliate offer on there, and buy some traffic and see what happens. Great. If nothing else, it'll be a fun experiment. Yeah. It's a great tool. Okay, so then you're in Las Vegas in this conference, and then this producer, the secret producer, reaches out to you. I, I, I heard the story that he came to your room, right? Knocked on your door. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, it's funny looking back and connecting all the dots. Um, but at that point, after he introduced us to what an e-cigarette was, we just kept our eye on the industry. And um, within about a year, we realized that it was starting to take off in the USA. And... Um, there wasn't very good products around there. The products that were being sold didn't have good branding um, and were, were really unreliable products. So we thought it was a good opportunity to go in at that point and start really putting a lot of, of uh, resources into building a brand. So you're talking about, when you say e-cigarettes, just so they understand, it's a cigarette that doesn't um, produce smoke, doesn't have... It's just vapor, yeah. It's just vapor. There's no tobacco, That's no right. yeah. nicotine. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's sold as a healthier alternative. You can also use it indoors wherever there's a smoking ban. You can still use these indoors. So in the UK, it's cold most of the year. People don't want to go outside to smoke. Okay. So it works on that level. It's cheaper than cigarettes. Mm -hmm. So they're popular all over the world. Most people are familiar with the big tanks. Um, but it's not the electronic one. Yeah. Because it's yeah. the electronic yeah, one? Yeah, the electronic one. E-cigarettes, oh, e electronic cigarettes. Yeah, yeah. stupid me. So okay. they're, all, they're, they're all shapes and sizes now. When we were getting into it, we the product we sell in tried to emulate a real cigarette and was much smaller. Okay. Um, I've tried those. They are very cool. Yeah. I have a few friends that are addicted to those. You're right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's got nicotine in it, so yeah. I know what you're getting yourself into. And that's great. Okay, so the guy that actually knocked on your door, you didn't do business with. No, because every, every single month there's like 100 new electronic cigarette manufacturers coming into the category and then 100 leaving. Okay. Um, so by the time we got into it, he was gone, but we found, we found great suppliers uh, that we continue to work with. So you found those suppliers in China? Right. In China. Okay, mm -hmm. so um, how did you find them? Was it like Google search or was it like calling agents and telling agents? It was, like it was a little bit of everything. And then all of a sudden, like all the different resources that you've been looking at start to kind of overlap and identify a couple of ones that you might be interested in working with. And then it just come down to getting supplies, building some type of digital relationship with them. And then um, once we got 
some of our early product in and actually started getting some sales, then it, then it was time to go over and visit and figure out if, you know, you need to get redundant suppliers or secondary suppliers or change suppliers. And that's always a question that, you know, right. becomes part of the business once you, once you start growing. And I know you chose the UK, right? Mm -hmm. Can you tell why you chose the UK? Uh, it just goes back to what we were just saying about the market there. So it's cold all year round. Um, the, the consumers are, or it's English speaking, so we could get into it without any type of translation. Um, the smoking ban, it just got introduced. People were having smoke outside. They're somewhat health conscious. Um, cigarettes are extremely expensive there. It's almost as expensive as they are anywhere in the world. So it kind of sold on so many different levels, um, and it was it was also there was there's less competition. So it was a smaller market, less competition, a little bit of a foreign market to us, but it was a, it was just a business decision, and there was something inside me burning to get out of the U.S. and try business international. So I was only 25 at the time, so I still wanted to go, you know, kind of stretch out before I, I did any like settling back in the USA. So it it, uh, it ended up being a really good decision. So that was the first time you, you actually left the U.S. for a longer period of time. Yeah, yeah. I'd done a little bit of traveling to like Central America, Colombia, Caribbean, but that was it. Mm -hmm. So that was the first time overseas. And back then, did you even know that there was this thing called digital nomads or did you even think about becoming... I, right one? around that time was uh, when Tim Ferriss put out the four-hour work week. So it, it was kind of a stretch at that point. You know, the people working online from remote locations was like... Not really. Like people working online from home, yeah, that was just starting to get popular. But like traveling and working from a computer, it was not easy because, you know, the MacBooks were not really around slim and fast at that point. So you had like these kind of big clunky HPs and there was very limited free Wi-Fi anywhere. So it was, it was, the infrastructure globally wasn't there, especially like in a lot of nomad, popular nomad destinations that are out today. Yeah. Cool. And I remember from your presentation at the conference, you showed pictures like you and your partner at the time. Actually, because a lot of people think maybe you were going like to the UK with a lot of money already and setting up an office. And yeah. you guys were just like, no, that you, was, the story that they stole your camera, right? Oh, total misconception. So I, I basically had no money at the time. Um, the money that, that I was able to get for to start the business was, it was originally $50,000, which um, was basically went into building a website, setting up fulfillment, and like our initial product order had to be like 25 grand to get like, you know, fully, full on branded quality product. Mm -hmm. right. So there wasn't much left. Um, and so I was, I rented a, a really cheap car, put our product in it, drove around the UK for three weeks, and was the, literally slept in the car one night, slept in a hostel one night, slept in the car one night, slept in a hostel one night, and just a microwave food at, you know, local uh, gas stations and stuff so it wasn't it was it, it was a humble like bootstrap beginning and with your cell phone filming the people yeah, who were trying not even cell I don't think there's cell phone cameras back then it was like a little $60 point shoot camera it was uh, but that's you know it worked worked for what we needed it to be so and you would offer the cigarette because people didn't see this presentation I thought this was awesome awesome mm -hmm. idea like you would offer the cigarette in the streets and then Film the people trying it out, right? And yeah. just record all this material. Yeah, back then you couldn't advertise electronic cigarettes because they were regarded as tobacco. They're classed as tobacco. Mm -hmm. So we didn't have any way to advertise. So one of the only things we could do is literally hit the streets, put product in people's hands, and hope they liked it, told their friends about it, came on our website, bought reorders. 
And so with this, we actually, you know, we gave out probably a hundred free packs, um, and that started generating some early sales, and also gave us some content to make a, a pretty cool little intro video to e-cigarettes and our brand. Right, and then you guys worked on the online. Yeah, um, yeah, that was we 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 called it uh, having a good ground game. So we really really worked on to leverage kind of our affiliate skills um, and some of the affiliate contacts we had. And then search engine optimization because there was somewhat limited competition. Uh, we knew if we got in early and did the right things that we could, you know, it wouldn't be something that would develop in six months, but in two or three years, we could probably dominate um, the space, the online space for it. Right. Mm -hmm. And then um, I remember you mentioned that like the, the big distributors, they weren't maybe so online as you guys were because they were focused on other things, right? That's where you had the biggest difference there yeah absolutely yeah definitely um good memories uh, a lot of the a lot of the people that came into the e-cigarette space were people that already had distribution set up like retail distribution and those it's amazing how powerful distribution is because some of those people they're just traders like they're almost like an offline affiliate right they just buy product but they have five thousand stores that they can put product into in like a click so that's a really, really powerful chain. But because of that, they didn't work on branding that much. They were just buying the cheapest product they could get and putting it into stores because they needed that margin between them and, um, and uh, retailers. So uh, while they were doing that, we were busy really just like trying to take over the online space and building a really good brand. Mm -hmm. So when people actually searched for something related to e-cigarettes on Google, you guys always came up first. Towards the end, yeah. yeah. Um, and that was, that was the goal, is having a long-term vision and understanding it's not going to pay dividends the first six months and that you have to have a long-term vision for it. And um, if you're trying to build a product and you're trying to build a brand, that's the approach that, that you got to take and understand it's not going to start... Um, paying off for you for a couple of years. Right. But then uh, then you have something very valuable. So what was the time that you noticed you had to go to China? Uh, there was a lot of times that I went to China. One of the uh, the early, uh, one of the, the most uh, pressing times was we actually had, there was a factory fire and I had to, um, there was, it wasn't clear if there was a factory fire. There was kind of rumors that there was. And, um, but we had, you know, pretty much all of our eggs in that basket per se and I went over and yeah there was a there had been a factory fire but they were able to they were able to get a new factory set up literally the next day um, and that gave me some that gave me a, a, a little bit of a reason to spend more time over there and find uh, secondary suppliers and build redundancies into our supply chain and uh, yeah it's, it's an amazing place over there it's uh, you'd be amazed by by what they can build and their efficiencies and it's, it's crazy operations so what did you learn from this adventure in China? Like, what were the lessons learned dealing with the, the Chinese people from beginning to end? Well, they're, they're uh, I, I, I guess I got a lot of respect for them. Just, you know, I wanted, I thought I was going to go over there with essentially no manufacturing experience and, and tell them how to manufacture better. And I was just amazed by the processes and practices they had in place and and how thorough they were with every product they tested. So I gained a lot of respect for them on that level. The cleanliness, I mean, of course you hear like horror stories of these factories in Asia, and of course they exist, but what I saw in my experience there was, was really high grade, high quality, high tech manufacturing. Um, and their ability to kind of adapt 
and and uh, and shake off you know troubles basically. Mm-hmm. And I, but I want to think one of the biggest things I learned over there is is you can't you can't be dependent on a supplier because you, there's so many things that can disrupt your supply chain. You have to build redundancies both into the uh, the, the total supply chain, including logistics, because there was a couple times that um, Chinese New Year would come up and say, "Yeah, we're going to ship we're going to ship all your product out this day," and it doesn't get shipped. And then Chinese New Year comes around and can't ship for those 15 days. And then after Chinese New Year, there's you know a two week backlog in shipments. So you could go like you know six weeks without product, and that happened to us a couple times. It was really really hard to overcome with customers. Mm-hmm. Wow. And what about the story that I heard of the Chinese partner guy who came to help you at the hospital thing? Yeah. That's kind of like a lucky, I believe in luck mm-hmm. also. Do you? Absolutely. So meeting that, I, I didn't understand like uh, the whole context. Like you met the guy the same day and then? Um, the That guy was an engineer at, at one of our old factories. And we talk about luck there's definitely always luck elements but you create all of your luck right so that was that was a relationship i had gotten by poking my head around the factory and finding someone who spoke english he was never supposed to meet me because he was a smart like a smart amazing guy with the perfect english and like almost no one else at the factory spoke english and i was just running around shaking hands and you know ended up meeting this guy and he gave me his number and uh that night i got really really sick like and i didn't know what to do And he was the only one I knew that spoke good English. So in like in the area. So I called him I'm like, dude, I'm like, I'm barfing everywhere. And I'm like, he's like, tell me your hotel. I'll come pick you up, take you to the hospital. And he came, took, took me to the hospital and they were short staffed. So he stayed with me all night. And we talked about the e-cigarette industry while he held my IV liquids above my head. And I was like, this is just one of the, the most incredibly smart, intuitive, like forward thinking people I've ever met. And look, he's just like an engineer at a uh, engineer at a factory. Right. And um, I was like telling him my vision for e-cigarettes. He was telling me his vision. Like I'm like, dude, we got to do business together. Like, and he wanted to start his own factory. So that's that's basically how he got into business. We said we would, you know, commit some of our supply to him if he can produce, and um, and he said he would do it if we would do that. So yeah. that's one thing led to another. And, Eventually, we formed a joint venture. So the English thing in China is really true. Like, they don't speak English, right? Because in Brazil, it's, I don't know if you know, but 8% of Brazilians speak English. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot of Brazilians will understand, they can read, yeah. but they don't speak it. Sure. So, uh, you, from your experience in China, you, you, you felt that too? Yeah, it was, you know, China has evolved so much in the last 20 years. And they've evolved so much in the last five years on different levels. And, and English is definitely one of those levels. So when I go to that pocket in Shenzhen that I, that I used to go to, now so many people speak English. And that's a lot because people that could speak English came there because there's so much opportunity for them. Right. And now uh, everyone that's you know in school is learning English. And, and that um, was how long ago? Uh, I was like you know, three or four years ago. Okay. But even that whole area is like so westernized now, you know, but uh, Shenzhen's a pretty incredible place. If you ask anyone who spent time there, they've seen the whole city transform and now it's like 40 million people. It's unbelievable. Right. Okay. So then you invested, what, $100,000 in this business and you sold it for $100 million? Mm-hmm. Is that true? Yeah. And you're how old now? 30. How does that feel? 
Turning 30 wasn't Boniface what you mean. I know, I can, I can tell you about turning 40. <laughs> I heard turning 30 is the hardest one for a few people. But oh, no, it's awesome. Yeah. Turning 40 is even better. Okay, good. Look at that optimism. <laughs> Got that to look forward to. Yeah, it's been good. It's, um, I think, uh, like, looking back, you know, I, I think probably the best times that I could say were, um, were, were kind of being, uh, like getting into remote work. And like running a business that you realize was sustaining your lifestyle and not having you kind of just stuck working for someone else. So, you know, people talk about the exit and, you know, the, the big office that we had and, and all the fun we had and stuff. But really, for me, the coolest part was my big clunky uh, Hewlett Packard computer and being like in a beach in Mexico and finding some, some random Wi Fi signal that I could get onto. And being able to, to operate the business like that. That was that was the best. Um, and, you know, that's where I'm back now. Just with a computer in my bag and traveling light and, and staying pretty flexible. Mm -hmm. um, and my lifestyle hasn't changed at all. You know, I still live pretty much on the same budget I was five years ago. Um, so I think that's, that's something that some people overcook that they have to build this business and take venture capital money and do all these, you know, crazy growth things. And that's certainly cool if that's, if that's what drives you. But, you know, if you can build a lifestyle business that supports some type of, of, uh, work lifestyle, um, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, ability to, to be remote, then I think for most people that's, that's pretty much achieving the work dream. You're not even traveling first class yet. Oh, I do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I don't, I don't stay at, you know, Several hundred dollar hotel rooms, um, but yeah, when I when I fly, I like to fly as, as comfortably as possible. You so. deserve that, right? <laughs> <laughs> I spent I spent many many flights, probably five hundred flights in the the back row by the bathroom. So okay, but you're not close to buying a jet. <laughs> That's one of my brother's dream. He's 25. He's like, oh, my dream is to have my own jet. I can't stand airports and these lines and stuff. Uh, I, I agree with them on that for sure. It's getting better though. There's, you know, airlines like Emirates and, um, I mean, they have done so much to bring the standard up of flying. It's, it's crazy. I, I would fly Emirates for fun. And when I go back to the U S and I have to get on those crappy old jets with like these seats smashed together and these old, like grumpy stewardesses, it's, it's literally like an anxiety attack. I'm like, I can't do this for two hours. And then you go fly like, I mean, Emirates and, and their lounges and it's, it's a fun flying experience. You know, they have like these great staffs. They have these onboard bars that you don't even feel like you're in a plane and these massive like A380 jets. It's great. Like, I hope that that, you know, in our lifetime that the standard of, of air travel gets picked up by a few of these kind of winning airlines. Yeah, so is that maybe a, an area that you would like to go into? Because that's my next question. Like, if you, okay, we talked about the co-working and the cigarettes, but is there anything that you're looking at that you're thinking like, mm, this is something I would like to step into? Um, I'm actually, I love business. I like business more as like a sport and just kind of keeping my mind sharp. Um, but I, I would love to be able to spend the majority of my time in some type of uh charitable calls or philanthropy. I actually just did a meeting this morning with uh, an organization here called Child's Dream that we've been getting involved with. But I would, I would like to get involved in a, 
I think there's so many, so many things that need to be fixed in like NGOs, um, governmental organizations and profit areas. Um, and I would like to get involved in some type of innovative, like technical way, like building some type of platform to, to kind of build more efficiencies into these things. Because I think one thing that's been common with so many of the autobiographies that I've read and biographies about people that have had led very full, successful, satisfied lives is that at the end of their life when they're looking back, it's always about giving back or helping or, or having some cause above your own self-interest that is the most fulfilling. And, but a lot of people don't realize that until they're, you know, 75, 80 years old. So I think that earlier that people can have exposure to, to kind of helping people and um, uh, that are less fortunate, the better. Uh, it might not become your life mission, but it'll certainly give you another aspect of life. So that's kind of where I'm trying to focus my um, my energies going forward. And, but. So we, we need to talk because I, I don't I don't think I told you, but I worked in the slums in Brazil for 10 years mm -hmm. with disadvantaged kids. Mm -hmm. And I started with these kids when they were like, actually, it's, it's interesting. It was my, my, my American mother, because I lived in the States when I was a child, when my father went to do his MBA. Mm -hmm. And then when I was an exchange student, I was an exchange student in Indiana. Right. And my American family in Indiana was amazing. I still visit them almost every year. Mm -hmm. And when they came to visit me in Brazil, imagine a couple from Indiana who never left the States before. Right. And they got to Brazil, and this three-year-old three little girl came to the car at the traffic lights begging for money. Yeah. And my American mom was like, so what have you done? You know, you're driving this cool car. You have your own company already. What mm -hmm. have you done to help this girl? Mm -hmm. And nobody had ever, like, asked me that question. And I, it was the first time I was 20. It was the first time I realized how selfish we are in Brazil. Because mm -hmm. we see these kids. We grow up with these kids on the at the traffic light. So it's, right. we're kind of, like, numb. Yeah. And my American mom, with that question, made me so embarrassed, mm -hmm. you know. And from that moment on, I started asking everybody and then I found this guy who put me in the slum like a week later mm -hmm. and that's another thing in Brazil it's like maybe I don't know 60-70% of our population actually lives in a slum mm -hmm. but nobody goes there yeah. to visit so when I went there and I started teaching these kids I felt so good about myself it was two hours a week every Thursday 11am I would go there inside one of their homes and I did this for 10 years and I quit my dad died and then like last year when I finally bit my, built my website I created a, a project on my website called one kid at a time mm -hmm. so because I'm a coach now and I did my coaching specialization my plan is to do webinars where I'm gonna train volunteers to mentor kids between 12 and 24 and it's all done online yeah. so I have some institutions already that I'm partnering up with in Brazil so they have the kids there mm -hmm. they have internet there and I have a bunch of volunteers it's much easier actually to find the volunteers than to find the kids mm -hmm. Interesting. and then I match up yeah. the volunteer and the kids and all the volunteer really needs to do is donate half an hour of his time mm -hmm. every two weeks so it's a one-hour commitment per month plus another hour of training mm -hmm. and I produce all the templates with the questions that they need to ask this kid it's almost like a big brother big sister yeah. type thing but it's all online and doesn't take a lot of time and energy and it can change so many and it's, That's it's awesome. scalable you know yeah it sounds like a great initiative I'm glad you're doing that yeah so it would be great for if you ever want to step in and help us out with your amazing ideas it would be great yeah we should definitely chat okay okay so um, just a few more questions here before we finish because I know you have to go in like 10 minutes um, 
25 countries a year. Why do you move so fast? Well, I got in a, the uh, habit of moving very fast for once the business, once we actually centralized in the UK, I was traveling all the time for, for business around Europe to Asia and back to see my parents in the US, etc. Visit uh, investors and stuff. So uh, I never actually, I looked back and I said, I think I calculated I'd never slept in the same bed for more than five nights in about five years. Oh my God. And, uh, in, in my brain was used to racing so much for the, you know, when, when we were operating the business that I, I just, I could never really like slow down. And then when I got out of the business, then that just transitioned into my, into my personal life. So I would start getting really bored in a place after being there for a week, you know, I'd get to a place go so fast, you know, for two days, like see the entire city, try the best bars and restaurants, and then be like, okay, let's go, go to a new place, new city, new country. So, and every place that I went that was new, I learned something, I learned something about humanity, I learned something about business, currency, etc. So, I just chalked it up to be the best learning experience what is could, that? It's That's the ice cream truck. Ice cream yeah. truck? It's about that time of the day. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Okay. Yeah. So they got to see the ice cream truck in Chiang Mai. So are you are you slowing down now though? Or are you still No, I'm I'm, sl I'm slowing down. My goal is to spend half the year in Chiang Mai this year and um, and the other part probably like between Singapore and Hong Kong. Um, but not, you know, visiting four or five continents in the same year. So. If you were to choose like maybe one or two places that you really like repeating yeah. more often, where where would it right be? Right now, it's uh, it's somewhere in Southeast Asia. I like pretty much Singapore, Hong Kong, Thailand, same, but they're very interchangeable for me. Although they're they're vastly different, uh, and I, I've started growing quite a liking to uh, the California coast, Southern California. Right. So <clears throat> that's kind of my aim coming into the next couple of years, maybe half the year in um, in each place. And then San Francisco or. San Diego? Yeah, more like San Diego, LA. San Diego, LA. That's it. Okay. Yeah. And what do you like about Hong Kong? I was there for like 10 days. You know, it's just so... Yeah, it's, it's such stacked. Such a huge <laughs> yeah. place. It it's, drives me crazy. I, uh, I love the energy there. Um, I think there's, there's just a lot of things going on there because, you know, all the, there's just so much money in China um, and a lot of that money ends up in Hong Kong and... It's, just, it's a magical place. It's got incredible history of trading um, with like the English coming over and, and, and uh, engaging with the, the locals there and the opium trades. And there's just so much going on. It's like, it's the type of place, like if you're not in an office by eight in the morning with a cup of coffee, like already involved in some type of initiative, like you feel like the world's passing you by. And for me, that's a great change of pace to Thailand where it's just a zillion distractions and easy living and you know it's just it's there's no pressure to really perform I feel like so Singapore Hong Kong for me are a great uh, a great blend okay I got it and um, so you're you're thinking of doing six months I mean three four months in each place now right? yeah I think uh, this like I'll head south to the Thai beaches uh, next month and then probably back to Chiang Mai and then maybe Hong Kong for a month, and then back to Chiang Mai, and then Singapore for a month, and some, try something like that for a year. What about Florida? Florida uh, is a great place to grow up. My parents love it, but for me, I think it's like so many people, you spend you know 30 years in a place, and it just it's not that exciting to go back to. So, uh -huh. uh, And it's, it's pretty far to get to it at this point. 
Right. So yeah, my sister's in California. I like I like California. Okay, it's cool. My thirties. <laughs> now, what about your routine? Like, do you have any performance tools? Like, I I'm into meditation right now mm-hmm. and exercise. Do you do you exercise on a regular basis? Yes, I get, I get this question a lot, and there's so many people talking about this right now, and I have a, a little bit of a a different view on it, and that is everyone is talking about morning routines and starting your day right and meditation, yoga, and all this stuff. And I, I definitely agree with that stuff, but I, I agree with it as more of a balanced life. Um, and I, there's some part of me that feels like if I did that for the last five years, I might not have gotten where I wanted to go. Um, because my life for three or four years that we're building the business was 100% work. It wasn't worrying about going to the gym. I was traveling, but I was still working you know, 12, 14 hours a day. So roll out of bed, smash some coffee, smash more coffee, and just be just tunnel vision on work, whatever it required. And it wasn't until I got out of that and was realized I would, how stressed I was during that time period um, that I started looking at more like you know hour to two hour morning routines, including like stretching, meditation, no cell phones, reading a book, drinking tea, things like that. Um, but I don't necessarily think that's that's required to be successful. I think it's required to be more balanced and more aware in your day. But if your only focus is building a business, being successful, I don't necessarily think that that has to be part of it. So during those three years, not even exercise? Yeah, I exercise every now and then when I got a chance. That would probably be my, my, my second thing to work. But it, I wasn't taking 30 minutes out of my day to meditate or go to yoga class. or. And now you are? Uh, I try to be, yeah. yeah. I don't, I don't even, I haven't gotten fully into it yet. I still like rolling out of bed and just being one track mind. Have you ever bed. been to a silence retreat here? No. Oh my God, you should definitely try yeah. that. I did that for ten days. It was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Well, send me some information on it. I'm always looking at doing like these kind of uh, committed, yeah. committed types of. Uh, I think I'm gonna getaways. do a seven day one in some way next month. Cool. They have a seven day one there that are, I did the ten day one of the same organization in, in Suratani. Yeah, sweet. Great. So um what's for the future? Like how do you see yourself five years from now? Like this perfect, amazing future for you five years from now would be what? Would um, like what? I, I think I would like to be pretty settled by that point. Um in a in a cool spot like that gives me lots of flexibility and somehow still involved in creating something um i would like to be involved in charity much more at that time uh hopefully doing something that can kind of pave a better path for for that i mean there's just there's so much going on this this disorganized i feel like in that space that could be put to better use and i I don't know what the niche will be but hopefully i can find a way to to make things better Mm -hmm. so you see yourself in one spot but you don't know which one yet well that should be knocking on the the baby years time frame for me so i would probably have to be somewhat centralized (laughs) or you can be nomadic family maybe never know people do it yeah times will be changed by then you can do crazy things like me i froze my eggs yeah because i wanted to buy some time i hate the biological pressure on women there you go yeah (laughs) so just two more questions to finish here you mentioned your partner, how awesome she is. Like, what kind of skills do you normally look for in people that you hire to work with you, or that you invite to partner? Up yeah, with? Uh, I think it's so. It, number one is always the right attitude. Um, more businesses fail just because of people they have to answer to, or people they work with, or, or partnerships. 
um, than, than not having opportunity or the right game plan. So that, that's number one, just making sure that you are comfortable working with that person and that person's got the right attitude. Um, everyone we hired for SkySig, like almost everyone was just out of college and we just looked for people with the right attitude. And if they have the right attitude, they can learn and they can be responsible and they can be reliable and accountable and all those, those good things. So I think that's number one, like if just not worry necessarily about skill sets, um, just worry about people that are just gung-ho and want to want to go to bat with you. Mm -hmm. Do you, um, is your team today entirely remote? Uh, Leanne and I are here in Chiang Mai, but we consider ourselves remote and uh, everyone else is remote. Yeah, we have, we have writers in several different continents. Um, our developers are in Bolivia. Um, we have some admin people that help us from Philippines. So yeah, until, um, you know, we could probably do that for a long time. And at some point, if it makes sense to centralize, then we'll centralize, but there'll always be a remote component. Right. And what's your opinion about the whole digital nomad thing? Like, do you think this is going to grow exponentially? Um, because I, I get mixed feelings about mm -hmm. the digital nomad sometimes. Like, I see a lot of backpackers calling themselves digital nomads, yeah. but they're still, like, trying to figure out a way to, yeah. to have your lifestyle. Yeah. Um, do you think that it's, from what you've seen in so many other countries, is this part of the world where it's all happening? Is the States? Uh, it's, it's, it's going to grow exponentially. Um, it has in the last few years and, and it'll continue. There's, there's a lot of people, different people you talk to. There's a hedge fund manager that, um, that I subscribe to that says he thinks there will be some like 60% of the world's workforce will be remote by 2025. Like that's mass, that's, that's you know, yeah. two billion people. At the conference, uh, one of the guys said he had read it would be a, a billion digital nomads by 2030 or 2035. There's no doubt it'll grow just because of the internet and, and uh, you know, all size businesses are decentralizing. Um, people are moving into co-working spaces. Everyone wants to travel and be more flexible, including managers, including business owners. So everything will continue to go in that direction. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> there are a lot of people out there figuring out how to, how to make a, a living online. But, you know, that just means people are trying to figure out humans are very smart. They'll, they'll figure out more and better ways to do it. So I think I can expect it definitely to continue to grow. And um, Southeast Asia, South America seem to be the hot spots. Um, Europe's just too expensive, typically, for people just starting out to, to be, uh, quote-unquote, nomading around. But, um, but yeah, every place will continue to grow, as long as there's Wi-Fi. That's right. You know that in Brazil, um, I think maybe 1%. I, I don't even know any Brazilian company that has remote team, remote mm -hmm. culture. So I'm trying to set up this conference that I invited you for in July in Brazil to try to bring the message, start bringing the message mm -hmm. to some of these people. So if you were to sit and have a coffee with a CEO in Brazil and try to talk him into opening his eyes to letting his team go work wherever they want, um, like, how would you tell him? Like, how well, would you well, convince nothing, him? Nothing's for free, right? You don't just do it because you're a benevolent, like, great guy or great woman. You do it because there is some positive aspect to your business. So typically, uh, when centralized businesses let either let centralized workers go remote or hire workers that are already remote, it's, it's a cost savings. 
to a lot of places, like I have friends in the U.S. They're negotiating with their bosses instead of taking whatever they are salary. They're taking thirty percent less to do the same work, but they're working out of the office. Mm. That's less space the company needs, so they can you know they can rent out desk space or they can have a smaller office. So it's it's a business decision. You don't just do it just to just to be a nice guy and let everyone run around. Um, but you can save a tremendous amount of cost and overhead to your business by letting people go work remotely. And typically, I think you'll find that you'll get better output because people will be so happy with their new, uh, their new flexibility that they're going to want to put in the extra effort to make sure that they can maintain it. Right. Productivity normally goes up, mm-hmm. right? For sure. Sam, it was great talking to you and knowing a little bit more about you. Thank you so much. I hope we see you in July. I hope to see you in July as well. I will definitely put up an amazing schedule and send it to convince you. (laughs) Look forward to it. I'll hold you to that now. Okay. Thanks for having me. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by MaxiCareerCoaching.com, where you can download the transcript of this interview and subscribe to our free courses and newsletters. We'd love to hear from you and to know about your exciting career story. Be sure to tune in again for our next episode of Exciting Careers Podcast.